Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. Welcome to Diner Talks with James. I'm James. Super excited to be with you all here today, my friends. My boy Isaac Adai is in the building. I'm really excited for you to meet him. He is a fascinating man with charisma out the pores, uh, and I just uh, just a great dude. Uh, we is actually it's funny. Normally, a lot of the guests up until this point, I've known for probably at least three years, maybe ten, maybe more. Uh, and uh, Isaac and I know each other for a solid two weeks, but I could just tell from the jump uh, that uh, that he and I were going to be good. people people and good friends. And I just found him fascinating. So I asked him to come through to the diner and have a, a bite to eat with me. I don't know if he's eating, but we'll find out. Uh, but my friends, it's Diner Talks with James and there's standards here, friends. There's protocols. So let's jump in tonight's top three, top three. Let's go right now. Here we go. Top three dog breeds. I asked Tina, Tina, what should I talk about in the top three, top three? And she said, you should talk about your favorite dog breeds because 95% of the Instagram messages that Tina sends to me are dogs. So there's that constantly planting seeds. So here you go. My top three favorite dog breeds. First off, I love Great Danes. I like a dog with a big ass head. Next, I like Bernese Mountain Dogs. And last but not least, I truly fit the stereotype. When people say, oh, your dog kind of looks like you, that's exactly what I want. I want a Newfoundland. I want a small bear to hug. I need a dog that I can hug. We have a beautiful 16-pound lovable dog right now, but I feel like I'm going to crush her. And I just don't need that kind of stress in my life, all right? I'm already a big man walking these streets. (laughs) No matter what kind of dog we get, the most important thing that you need to know is that the dog's name will be Bill. Bill the Newfoundland. (laughs) All right, my friends, let's go. Let's go to any dog owners out there. If you have a dog, let me know about your dog. What kind of dog you got? What's your dog's name? Let me know. Let me know. All right, here we go. Number two in the top three, top three, the top three spiciest experiences of my life. Now, my friends, this is not the kind of spicy that you were hoping I was going to talk about that. That's for the after hours diner show that'll come out later when I've decided I need to be more popular. But no, these are actually spiciest foods. And since my guest is coming through from Nashville, I had to, this is how I thought about this. So first off, first off is, is Hattie B's. Hattie B's hot chicken, Hattie B's hot chicken, not by far, by far the most well-known hot chicken in the Nashville area, but not the best hot chicken in the Nashville area. Uh, but, uh, but cultural appropriation never tastes so good. So shout out to Hattie B's, uh, for sure. Next, I was once in Ithaca and I decided to get some pad thai and the woman asked me how spicy would I like it? And at that point I started liking spicier food and I said, you know what? I'm feeling confident today. Go ahead and make it spicy. That was a big mistake, y'all, because them Thai folk know how to add some spice to a meal, and I was literally burning. Didn't have anything. There was not enough Thai iced tea in the world. And last but not least, the spiciest experience of my life, I went to this one shop. You ever walked around a small town, and they always have those places where you can try all the different olive oils and stuff like that, and you can all the different balsamics and things. Love those shops. Here for a free sample, my friends, probably the only reason I have a Costco subscription. But there's this shop in Brooklyn called Hedonism, and that's Hedonism spelled H-E-A-T-anism. And so you walk in and you can try all of these different hot sauces. And I was like, yo, that's going to be amazing. Let me get in there. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get this blueberry habanero, get this mango chipotle, get me this ghost, whatever, jump, right? I'm trying all these hot sauces. And then my face was effectively on fire. And I said, okay, I'm done trying things. Do you all have any bread, any milk, any water? And they're just like, nah, nah, we don't. <laughs> so my dumb ass walked around the rest of Brooklyn sweating. Anyway, my friends, last but not least, the third thing. These are in honor of my boy, Isaac. He's a professor. He's a professor. So he may shake his head at me for this, but these are the top three things I did in class in college instead of paying attention to the teacher. All right, here we go. First off, I played video games in the back row with a controller hooked into my laptop. 
Ah, that, that happened. Okay, next. Uh, <clears throat> I also, as I mentioned last week, I destroy all pens that I have. In college, what I used to do was I used to buy those wooden pencils, number two, of course. Come on, I'm a man with standards. And then I would bite intricate designs into my pencils, uh, and eventually they would split in half and the lead would wind up in my mouth. I know it's graphite, but the way I turned out, I think it might have been lead in some of those. <laughs> okay. And last but not least, in anthropology, my sophomore year of college, I was not interested in paying attention. And so instead I said, hey, James, you're going to be famous one day. You need to have a better signature. So you got to come up with your, you're going to be famous one day signature. And that's exactly what I did. And now I got a fresh ass signature and a solid C in that class. My parents, if you're watching, I am sorry. I hope I've made up for that in the time since I've left college. Friends, that's tonight's top three. Top three. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. All right, y'all. Let's jump into this guest. My boy Isaac Adai is a great man. He's a great man. He and I have had some great conversations since we first met, and I just respect the hell out of him from the jump. And so he is uh, is a a business professor at uh, Tennessee State University. He is also a former engineer. He's also done some incredible things working with companies that you have heard heard of, like Raytheon and some other things. And, And I tell you what, the man is also super passionate about being a change agent. He's doing a lot of really incredible stuff in his community that I'm excited to talk to you about today. So right now, my friends, bring on tonight's favorite Ghanaian. Shout out to my boy, Isaac Adai. Hey, 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 hey. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Love that intro. I need to my take God. the road with me. <laughs> I am available for hire. Gotcha. Gotcha. What's now going on, can... man? You looking clean today, brother. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it. You know, I had to come with my A game. I figured, hey, I'm on Diner Talks. I got some tea. There you go. You know, got my gear ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> got to replicate this diner diner feel. You know, we, we got to do something, man. We yeah, exactly. I miss it. I miss these late night these late night meals are some of my favorite things to do with friends. A mutual friend of ours and the first guest on Diner Talks was Sam Davidson, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he and I have had many an appropriate inappropriately late meals around the Nashville area when I come to visit. And uh, <laughs> so yeah, but I'm curious for you, man. Uh, you know, what's your what's your late night food move? Do you have a spot in town that you like to go to? Like, what's your what's your guilty pleasure? Yeah, man, I'm a chicken wing guy. Uh, so if I'm looking for a late night guilty pleasure, I'm probably going to hit up Patterson House, which okay. is kind of overall for Music Row, Speakeasy. On their wing, on their menu, they have this seasonal curry curry wing that they bring. Um, and if I'm not there, I'm probably at Burger Republic in the Gulf getting their Memphis dry rub wings. That's my guilty pleasure. Woo. If it's not that, it's chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> wings and cookies, man. It doesn't get better than that. Wings, I mean, you, you could certainly have a worse meal, for sure. <laughs> you could certainly have a worse meal. Now, here's 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 the uh, the quintessential question. Uh-huh. Are you uh, blue cheese or ranch with your wings or neither? Ranch all day, man. Ranch, there you well, go. What's the purpose of blue cheese again? Help me understand. I don't know. What are we it's doing a, with blue cheese? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good buttermilk ranch, not just the regular stuff. <laughs> Stuff, the creamy ranch yeah exactly yeah get get that out of here craft yeah. we need that buttermilk junk or nothing uh- <laughs> buttermilk or bust yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here for that. All. I'm a ranch person as well. I don't like blue cheese. That's a disappointment that my mother has of me. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. It's funny because I went to Clemson. I went to Clemson for graduate school and Clemson has apparently a world famous blue cheese. Like you can go online oh, wow. to Clemson's website and order their blue cheese that their ag department makes and every who year. Okay. Who knew? Every year for Christmas, my mom would be like, no, you're checking your luggage when you come home. Come back I need you some, to of back some of that Clemson. Some of that blue cheese. So she was always real. I mean, yeah. And I felt bad because I couldn't partake in it, but it made my mom happy. So therefore, yeah, it was worth it. Got to do it for mom, man. <laughs> Even if it is blue cheese, right? Yeah, exactly. The things we do for love, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So now, now, are you born and raised in the Tennessee area? Or uh, tell me a little bit about like where you were born and raised, man. Yeah, sure. I was born in North Carolina, actually. Uh, my okay. parents, when they came from Ghana, they started out in the Boston area in Worcester, mm-hmm. Massachusetts. 
And yeah. I think they figured out pretty quick that the weather is different up there. So they started making their way down south. And along the way down south, they had me in North Carolina. But I grew up sure. primarily in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And then I finished high school in uh, Mississippi, Natchez, Mississippi. So pretty much been all around the south, southeast my whole life. All around the south. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Natchez, Mississippi is the first place I've been. I went to in Mississippi. That's where I checked the state off my list. Wow. Um, and okay. uh, yeah, I mean, there's some cooler parts of Mississippi than Natchez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Natchez is an interesting place, man. It's got some really, really unique history. I don't know if you heard of the Natchez Trace before. No, but, tell me about that. Yeah, so the Natchez Trace is this trail that American Indians and other settlers used to bring goods from uh, the Mississippi River banks where Natchez was a big trading post to Nashville, literally from Natchez to Nashville. So there's still, it's a historic uh, pres preservation. You can ride on the trace and no traffic lights, no stop signs, you know, federally protected wow. highway. Yeah. I mean, you can go from Nashville to Natchez. It, it's, it actually ends by my dad's house in Natchez. That's incredible. Is that, is that the quickest way to, Oh, uh, hell no. <laughs> Cause it's capped at, I think 50 miles per hour. So you can't really, yeah. The fastest way yeah. is, is definitely interstate traffic. I mean, there's a lot of roads that are capped at 50, but, yeah, but you yeah. know, <laughs> <laughs> um, the trace so. is one of them. Yeah. It'll probably take you 10 hours to get to Natchez. That's you know what? Funny. I actually have never driven the trace from Nashville to Natchez. I probably should put that on my bucket list. There you go. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like the kind of trip uh, a, a dad would come up with for his kids that he just, he wants his kids to know just how important it is. Yep. Yep. And it would have been a better, like seven minute lesson than a 10 hour drive. Exactly. <laughs> like, you, you guys are going to learn today. You yeah. Take this ride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's awesome, man. So you, yeah. you bounced around a whole bunch and, uh, and it, your fan, your parents, mm -hmm. your parents came here from Ghana, correct? Yeah. Yep. Does that make you here? A quick question: Does that make you a first generation? Yeah. Or does that make them the first generation? Like what? Like yeah. Me, so it's kind of it's kind of weird, but I think because I was born here, even yeah. though my parents are you know were born and raised in Ghana, I'm a first generation American. Okay. So I consider myself to be Ghanaian American, but in my family, I am you know the first generation in this country. So, yeah. uh, you know, when they, when they talk about uh, the Hispanic community, they use the, the, the term dreamer. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think that probably can apply to, you know, immigrant groups from all around the world that came to this country and, and looking for a better life. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, I totally agree. So why why did your parents come here? Like, yeah, what, sure. What, what, sure. What drove them here? So my parents are from the Eva tribe, which is a tribe that settled along the eastern border of Ghana. It's in in our tribe is very uh what they call book focused or academic focus. That's just okay. the, the general nature of our tribe. So my father came first, I think in about 77, to go to school. Mm -hmm. So he actually came and started his bachelor's degree in the New England area. And he brought my mom, I think maybe a year or two later. But their goal was the American dream. You know, they came here to chart a new path for our family and yeah. put us on a very different trajectory. And, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah, and I think it was a, a thing in, in the seventies too, where a lot of people were, were leaving various African countries and going to Europe or the United States. Okay. There was a, yeah. there was a big, a big movement in the seventies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now it's interesting, right? Because I, uh, I'm white. I don't know if I hide that well, um, oh, man. I, but, uh, <laughs> I <had> no clue. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, you know, in the learning here in the United States, what I was taught, um, is, is always the watered down version of history. Right. right. Um, and it's, it's the, it's the, the part of history that made me feel comfortable. Um, and that's lovely. And so, here, I, I want you uh, to, to lead again. If I ever say anything inappropriate, I hope that you will call me out because I'm here oh, to learn course. today. Um, sure. But uh, whenever I hear the term tribe, I mm -hmm. immediately get put back into probably what is the most archaic form of the word tribe, right? Like right. people sitting around fires right. um, and, and things like that, right? That when I hear tribe, right, I, 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 I immediately think about what the, the pictures, the amateur pictures of, of native Americans, right. Yep. And yep. of uh, African tribes with the spears. Right. And that's, 
I mean, what what are we talking about when you say tribe? Sure, sure. So when you hear me say tribe in reference to you know my ancestral homeland, we're basically referring to a collection of people. So if you think about the continent of Africa in the way that it's demarcated and the lines are drawn, those lines didn't exist in pre-colonial in terms of uh, colonialism. It just didn't exist. Yeah. It was more lines based around tribe. And the tribes are based around language, essentially. Mm. So people, a group of people who may have spoken a different language and occupied this particular territory, they had a name. It was either the name of their tribe or most likely the language that they spoke is typically what was the name of the tribe. So in Nigeria, the Yoruba tribe speaks the language Yoruba, if that makes sense. In Ghana, you've got the, you know, the Fontes, you've got mm-hmm. the Ashantis, this language and tribe and collection of people kind of go together in that way. The reason things are different now is because when the colonial powers that be came and took over Africa, they drew up and carved up the country in a way where they cut across tribes. Mm. So my family's tribe, even though we're on, we're settled along the Eastern border of Ghana, we're actually split across maybe three or four different countries because of where we were. And they just basically said, okay, here's a country, here's a country, carved it up. And it literally carved the tribe up. So parts of the tribe are in other other African countries, but it's the same language and it's the same people. Yeah. They just settled in that particular area. Are those different now facets of the tribe? Will you speak different different countries of that tribe? Yep. Is yep. the tribe still close? Like is it is that is that still something where or or have they like because these borders came in, were mm-hmm. people like truly separated from each other? Uh, or is uh, it kind some, of like more of like a Canada US border pre to some to some extent yes to some extent no so for example with the Eva tribe with my family's tribe we share a border with Togo so Ghana is on the west Togo is on the east people yeah. in Togo are Eva people in Ghana are Eva but Ghana was settled by the British was was colonized by the British and Togo was colonized by the French so yeah. the Eva people in Togo speak French the ever people in the in Ghana speak British English. So mm. that's a natural demarcation. So even though there is still the commonality of the tribe, how the colonial powers shaped those nations put some separation in place, essentially. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, Thank it's crazy. Ima- no. So I, let me give you a, a better example. You you were in New York. Yes. Right? So think about the f- imagine the boroughs being there, but they aren't the boroughs. They just are collections of people and somebody Mm -hmm. comes in one day and says, this is Brooklyn, this is Manhattan, this is the Bronx, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden your best friend that you grew up with is a part of a different tribe because the line cut across your neighborhood and now he is a part of another country. That's what happened in Africa. Wow. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, That's also what happened in New Jersey. And that's why we all make fun of New Jersey. (laughs) Um, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, so, New Jersey's uh, like the redheaded stepchild of New York. Jersey. New Jersey is a bad rep. <laughs> Poor Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, that's awesome, man. Thank you for for educating me sure, uh, and, sure. and the listeners on that. So. So you are a first generation American. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting place to be because culture matters, right? right. And uh, a culture is is so important and culture is something that is passed on generation to generation. But being a first generation American, you now have the choice of, and you had the choice even growing up in your middle school, high school, whatever years um, to adapt adapt, adopt, uh, you know, whatever the the right word is, probably all of them, uh, to, to your new culture while the same time making a decision in your head, does my, uh, what is being Ghanaian mean to me and, 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 and whatnot. Um, and so I'd be curious to hear like, how has that been for you? And I guess in particular, was there a moment growing up? Let's start, let's start the conversation here. Was there a moment growing up where you said, no, I am a proud Ghanaian and this is what I am. This is how I will introduce myself. Or again, maybe you introduce yourself with your tribe, not even the fact that you're Ghanaian. Um, and so like, was there a moment where you fell in love with it, your you culture? Know, I'm glad you asked that question. I've had this conversation a few times, but never, you know, widely on the platform like this. But mm-hmm. growing up and being bicultural was difficult in the sense of at home, everything was Ghanaian. The food we ate, 
sure. the way in which you heard our parents speak, the yeah. the culture that we were expected to adapt and adopt, as you mentioned, to adapt to and adopt. It was very Ghanaian. So it was dominant at home. And then I would get on the bus and go to school. And it's just whatever the flavor of that particular locale was. So if yeah. I was in Arkansas in Palm Bluff, which was predominantly black, it was black American culture. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm immersed in both worlds, trying to sense both. I really understand either. And that was my childhood yeah. because I got what my parents were trying to say, but it took me going to Ghana when I was nine for the first time to really get it. Like, yeah. oh, that's why all this is important. I mean, mm-hmm. I had no fucking clue. You guys are beating this in our brains, but we have no perspective of what you're talking about because, you know, I didn't grow up in the same environment. And so yeah. it clicked when I was nine that I'm Ghanaian. But prior to that, my parents had always said to us, you guys are born here, but you're Ghanaian. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, I hear you, but I'm trying to go to the movies or I'm trying to do whatever, you know, <laughs> it's just I'm trying to be a black kid or <laughs> American. Yeah, kid. right. And the, the cultures have some similarities, but they're largely two distinct cultures. I mean, I tell people all the time that Ghanaian culture with children is more about discipline, respect. It's not about your independence and your mm-hmm. voice, which is what American culture promotes. Yeah. So my parents are raising, you know, Ghanaian kids in black America who are outside of the home being taught to be vocal and free speech and all of that. And at home, they're like, this is Ghana. (laughs) That's not how this (laughs) operates. So there was a ton of friction growing up, man. And it was it was tough. I'm just just going to be honest with you. It was tough. But I think my parents helped me navigate that by helping us understand why their culture was the way it was and why certain things were important. And so they kept those cultural expectations on us. And as I've aged, I've been able to better navigate both worlds. And yeah. that's been by traveling back to Ghana and, you know, spending more time there as well. They didn't just hit you with, uh, because, because we said so. You know what? I think they figured that that wasn't going to work. Cause yeah. again, we're raising kids <laughs> in America. Our, we challenge everything. So I'm like, why? Yeah. Right. Why, why do course. I need to do this? It's like, cause I said, so I was like, well, that's not working. You got to come up with something else. <laughs> Maybe you haven't met me yet, mom and dad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you realize where we are? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was it was it was interesting. But I now I f- I feel like that's my uh strategic advantage in a sense, being bicultural and understanding hmm. both of those worlds. Tell me more about that. That's a that's a that's a, a cool thing to say. It's a strategic advantage. Yeah, man. I mean, I look, I was in class this evening. I had my leadership class. One of my students stayed on after the class. He's an immigrant. He came here when he was in high, at the, um, I think in the 11th grade. And so he was talking to me about his journey in America. He came from an African country and he and I had a great conversation. And I think I became an ally strictly because I'm able to navigate both of those worlds. And I was able to help him kind of work through some of what he was challenged with. Mm-hmm. Um, when I am dealing with people in a business world, per se, you know, I have an understanding of how things work here. I also have an understanding of yeah. how things work back home. And back home is very relationship oriented, very connection oriented. I lean on that skill set and strength to help me navigate this particular world. So, you know, as I've gotten older, man, I've really tried to figure out how to harness the power of being Ghanaian, but also being a black American. And that's what you, you know, are seeing today is the the result of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, mm. That's beautiful, brother. That's beautiful. Thanks. Man. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. And so, you know, in speaking about your your blackness, mm-hmm. you yourself, you wound up attending. I know you work at an HBCU. Correct. Um, uh, and did you also attend an HBCU yeah, as well? So I did. I, my both of my engineering degrees came from Tennessee State. So I actually studied okay. engineering at TSU. Yeah. So I'm an HBCU product and um, (laughs) work my, you know, finishing on my doctorate at Morgan state in Baltimore, which is also an HBCU. So sure. You know, I know Morgan state. Yeah, I know, Uh, man. So it's it's into, Oh yeah. Yeah. Your your chapter, it's your alpha chapter. Yep. Yep. I have five theta. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, man, I'm a product of HBCUs and I think, let me think about it. Yeah. My parents and all my siblings that have gone through college, everybody at least has one degree from a black college from an HBCU. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So in the choice and at the time that you had the opportunity to make a choice of college, obviously 400 plus institutions in the country. Um, What was it about HBCUs that that attracted you to that experience? Yeah. Did you go and tour multiple types of institutions and then settle mm -hmm. on one or are you just like Tennessee State or bust? So my mentor, Dr. Napoleon Moses, Mm -hmm. he was the provost, uh, associate vice president at Alcorn State University. Uh, But when I met him, he was a department chair in the department my father worked in. My father is a professor at Alcorn State. And so my father has been a professor since I was, I think, five or six is when he finished his doctorate. Mm -hmm. And he taught at HBCUs. Mm -hmm. So we were at North Carolina A&T. Then we were at University of Arkansas Pine Bluff and then Alcorn State. So I've been on the HBCU campus since I was in diapers, essentially. Yes, right. So yeah. HBCUs are a core part of, of who I am. But when I was planning to go to college, I had done a college tour with Dr. Moses, my mentor, my guy. Mm-hmm. It's like my godfather, my second father. And he took us from Mississippi all the way up to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island and back. And we hit all wow. types of universities along the way. Yeah, it was a hell of a trip, man. I'll never forget. I just reminded him about it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And after that trip, I, at that point, I was sold on Mississippi State and University of Tennessee because I was not aware of HBCU engineering programs and how strong they were. Mm-hmm. And I and growing up in the South, you know, you heard about the big SEC schools. So I said, hey, I'm going to one of those. So I applied and I got in. But he, Dr. Moses and my father were really, really pushing me to consider going to a black college. Uh, so even though I had been in those environments, you know, I always thought, okay, if I wanted to study engineering, you know, I'm in the South, the big schools you hear about, those are the places I want to go. Well, I was in Dr. Moses' office one day, uh, my senior year, he pulled a catalog, course catalog off his bookshelf, and it said Tennessee State University. I had never heard of TSU. And I'm like, okay, what's this? And it had the sophisticated ladies dance troupe on the front cover. And I was like, man, these chicks are nice. And he was like, <laughs> Isaac, they have a good engineering school. You should look at it. So I looked at it. You're like, yeah, engineering. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) They can engineer that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I looked at it, opened up to the engineering section, saw the website, went online, saw that they had a summer program for engineering, pre-engineering summer program for Mm -hmm. high school grads. It was, I think the application deadline was in two days. I applied, submitted my application, got in, went to TSU for the summer uh, got scholarships to study engineering and the rest is history. Now I did end up getting a full ride to FAMU, but I had already spent the summer at TSU and had made friends and decided I would just stay at TSU. Okay. Decided you didn't want a great homecoming experience either. <laughs> you know what, Fam- man? Family's got it going on, but TSU is up there too, man. TSU's homecoming is is up there. That's the but big fam- rivalry. The big yeah, rivalry. The big rivalry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's yeah. going what's going on with these homecomings? Yeah. Much love uh, to FAMU though. <laughs> uh for sure. For sure. Uh that's awesome, man. That's incredible. And now it's interesting, right? Because uh, you know, you decided uh to go to an HBCU and then you get your multiple degrees in engineering uh, mm-hmm. at, uh, at Tennessee State, uh, which is incredible, and, and go on to be an engineer, right? What right. kind of engineering were you, were you doing? Yeah. Were you doing so mechanical? I, were you I studied civil? electrical and computer engineering. Electrical and computer. Okay, great. Yep. And then, so then you're an, you're an engineer for a while, and then yep. you're like, you know what? This is kind of for the birds. And yeah, I don't know about man. this engineering thing. Uh, and so you kind of switched careers. I mean, how old were you when you switched your careers? So I started my career. I, I officially shifted to be a com- become a business professor in January of 2015. Okay. I resigned from my last engineering role in the fall of 2014 because at that point I had gotten far enough from my doctor program where I had finished all of my qualifying exams mm. and TSU was like, Hey, we know you're not done yet, but we love to have you come on down. You know, I had, so I, I, I had gotten a call from a buddy who was like, Hey, we know you're in a doctor program and TSU has a position open. Man, I never thought that I would come back to TSU as a faculty member. I thought I was going to finish at Morgan and maybe go work at Howard or something and yeah, still sure. do the engineering thing on the side or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were some other plans more divine than mine, and they led me to Nashville. Yeah, That's so awesome. it's a real, real homecoming. 
a real <laughs> a real homecoming though uh <clears throat> yeah uh that's that's special man and yeah. what what was it like for your family for mm-hmm. you to tell them hey i'm not going to be an engineer anymore yeah yeah my parents you know they've gotten a, a good understanding of me at this age but at one point i think they were a little worried because they wanted me to go straight to ibm when i finished college i had a job offer i said nope i'm going to grad school and they thought, oh, our son is crazy. Lord help us. What's wrong with this boy? <laughs> what what you know, did we do? Where he <laughs> got offered to make an almost 60K to go to Tucson, Arizona. He turns it down. And yeah. I'm thinking, I just want to go to grad school and I don't want to work and go to school at the same time. So let me just do this. So after my grad uh, grad school tenure, my job offer at IBM got bumped up 15K and they were like, oh yeah, you're smart. Our son is smart. That was a good move. <laughs> so when I told my parents that I was not as passionate about my engineering career and that I wanted to do something different with my life, it was interesting because my parents believe in me, yeah. but they come from a different world. And so my dad thought, okay, so you're married. I was married at the time. You have a young child. You're going to quit your job and go back and be a full-time PhD student. Lord help us. Come and get this kid. <laughs> what the hell is going on? And um, and so there was a little friction there. And I get yeah. it. You know, your parents, I'm the oldest. I'm the firstborn in this country. So whatever dreams they had of coming to America, I manifested those. So they're looking at me to be the 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 you know the great hope for the family. And here I am, you know, pivoting. And it didn't make sense, but it all worked out, man. I wanted to be more in control of my impact. I know that I made impact in my work as an engineer, but I felt like it wasn't as direct. I wanted to touch lives in a more direct way. And I had been in an academic setting my whole life with my dad being a professor. My mom was a social worker. Now she's a professor. And so teaching is just a part of my DNA and I enjoy it. And it was a it was a great shift, man. The 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 way I happened up on business, though, I never intended to get a PhD or attempt to get a PhD in business. I thought maybe I'd do an MBA and get an engineering PhD sure. and teach when I'm old and and can't do engineering anymore. Right. But um, a mentor of mine who was an engineer and got his doctorate in business said, "Why would you do an MBA when you can just get a PhD in business?" And I was like, "Who gets a PhD in business?" And he said everybody that teaches in a business school. And I'm like, Mm. think about it. You never hear about a business PhD. You hear about PhDs and other fields, but not business. And so I ended up uh, from my ex-wife learning about the PhD project, which is an organization that helps people get into doctor programs and business. And I started my journey at Morgan state and, you know, I'm almost done, you know, a decade later, thank God, but the, sh- the shift wasn't the easiest shift, but it was a, a pivot in my career that has changed my life yeah. in, in, in a profound way. That's incredible. Yeah. So do you think you're getting the PhD because of the opportunity it's going to open up for you to teach? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just by getting into the doctor program, finishing my coursework and taking my qualifying exam and passing it gave me the opportunity that I have at TSU right now. Yeah. So it opened up a door for me. But I think that the degree is going to open up even many more doors that I can't even fathom at this point, because my background in engineering, having a business degree with my community engagement positions me to be sought after from people from all different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I I think it's, it's, things are going to really take off in the next few months. (laughs) That's exciting, man. Yeah. Cause you're almost done. Yeah. We're we're wrapping up here. When do you defend? Um, I I believe in January. I'll be done, done. Let's go. Yeah. I love that. So keep my fingers crossed. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny, Isaac, I've thought about getting a PhD um, or an EDD, some sort of terminal degree like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that in order to do it, you need to do it for the right reasons. Yeah. And I don't think right now, I don't think it's the right reason. Like, I think if I was going to do it, uh, it would be just because it's like, well, I think I need a little more credibility. Yeah. Right. It would be yeah. like, you know, just those three letters after my name. Well, then, then then people would respect me. Then people would think I'm intelligent. Yes, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's so, but that, I mean, people who and correct me if I'm wrong, people who get into programs for that reason, don't often finish them um, yeah. because they're not, they're not necessarily down for the work, right? It takes, it's, 
PhDs have almost nothing to do with intelligence and almost everything to do with grit um, yeah, and just 100%. the ability to put, put the nose down and get the work done. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, I've thought about getting, there's all, there's also parts of me now that if, as I, as I've gotten a little bit older and ideally more mature, I don't know, let's find out. Um, but uh, there's also part of me that's like, oh, it'd be cool to run my own study and then why not publish it? And if I'm going to do that, then I might yeah. as well get a doctorate along the way and not just do some independent study. Um, right. And so, yeah, I don't know. So there's parts of me that is slowly coming around. I don't know if we're going to do it or not. Um, but I know that the initial reason for me was like, this will make people respect you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's just not the reason to do it. You know, what I can say about the, the doctor degree in, in any field, any terminal degree, it's it, it, it has to be it has to come from a selfish place, because mm -hmm. if you're doing it for somebody else, that's not enough. If yeah. you're doing it for some vain reason, it's not enough because it's so easy to just walk away from it. It's 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 one of the most unnecessary things that you have to go through. Like you don't need to do it. I mean, think about it's it. one you of the most don't. unnecessary you things. You got to get a bachelor's. <laughs> you know, you might need a master's. Maybe if you get a bachelor's in English, you might need a doctor. But I mean, yeah. it's one of those things where you have to sign up for it. You have to be willing to to put in the work. And for me, one of the things that I struggle with was a big part of my pursuing this path was family. And so when I got divorced, it was like half of my desire for even wanting to do this went out the door with the marriage. And I was like, well, OK, I ended up I had to make it about me, you know, and it takes, you know, a, a selfish act to finish it because you do have to isolate yourself, you know, focus, lock in and everything around you is going to be pulling you away from your work. You have to take yourself away from other things to focus on your work. So you've got to really want it for the right reasons. And, and my mother, which is a little different from my father, my mother had a career prior to starting her doctor, kind of like me. My dad went straight through and got his doctor. My mom worked as a social worker and she didn't start her doctoral journey until after I was in college mm. and became a social work professor. So she started later in life. I don't think that there's um, any right time to do it. I just think that if the desire is there, explore it, look into it, find a program for you and and go for it because it's, it's rewarding. It's definitely rewarding. You're going to learn a lot about yourself and there'll be opportunities that come with it, too. Yeah. It's so funny the way you just said that, because that's what most people with PhDs tell me. You learn more about sometimes you learn more about yourself than the subject that you're doing <laughs> the actual doctorate on. Trying to get a PhD in business. I've also earned a PhD in Isaac. Uh, yeah. I've, right, right. I've really <laughs> under, come to really understand what makes me tick mm -hmm. and what doesn't make me tick and who I am and also who I'm not. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I've gotten that through this journey. That's awesome. I want to see what that hat looks like at graduation. That PhD in Isaac, I want to see. <laughs> so what's that felt hey man, moment? that's a crazy hat. That's <laughs> uh, I love that. Yeah. Isaac, I want to I want to talk to you a little bit more about what you uh, what you do, and I want to kind of get into a little bit more of your teaching okay. uh, that that you do. But uh, let's jump into a segment first. Sure. Oh, not these two again over here. Okay, all right, break it up, you two. Enough of this here now. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. You're not smiling now, are you? So we're going to do a segment of the show called Things You Didn't Know About Me That You Didn't Know You Needed to Know But Are Now Glad That You Do. One thing you should know about this, Isaac, as a first-time viewer and first-time caller, uh, is that the name of this segment changes every time because I can never actually remember it. But <laughs> you get it. So, Isaac, we're going to share something random about ourselves, uh, okay. and uh, I just just to learn some random facts about you and some random facts about me. I'll go first. Um, it's just because it's rude to put you on the spot like that. <laughs> uh, so. Something random about me is that uh, I dislocated, uh, no, excuse me, I broke my left wrist wow. trying to impress a girl in first grade. Wow. That's so, pretty early in life, that's man. Pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> early, yeah. I thought I was going to get to hold her hand going in after recess. Instead, I held my teacher's hand on the way to the nurse. Wow. So, yeah. 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 That's, that's going to be a scar. <laughs> More <laughs> emotional than anything. In your memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my turn. Uh, so I've gone skydiving once before. 
and I have it on video. I literally jumped out of a plane for a buddy's 30th birthday a few years back. Mm -hmm. And on the way to the skydiving place, I had no intention to skydiving. I was just going to be a support system. Yeah. And an hour later, I'm in the plane going up. And it was one of the craziest, most fun, stupidest, dumbest things I've ever done. I did it tandem. So I was attached to a big guy, sure, yeah. uh, which was strange. But it was, think, it was. I don't think they let you go alone on your first you one. You got not, not the first one. That might be the last one. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's a random fact. And I have the video of it, too. I got the whole thing videoed. I just that's insane. Where were y'all? Were you in Tennessee? Yeah, we were um, this place outside of Memphis. I forgot okay. the name of it. Maybe Tennessee Skydiving or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was exhilarating. So you went, you were in the car on the way to the spot, mm -hmm. just yeah. as like, I'm a support. I'm going to be there to oh, put yeah. your leg hey, back man, on after you land. It was my yeah. line brother. Like, yeah, man, yeah. I'm, you know, hey, man, this is going to be awesome. You're going to love it. And then we get there and his wife is like, yeah. So I was, you know, the thought was that you all were going to go because it was a whole group of guys. And I'm like, huh? I didn't sign up for that. I didn't even come dressed appropriate. I had Chuck Taylors on, like, <laughs> I would have wore some other shoes. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, do you think that helped you? Like, instead of being like, oh, shoot, I'm jumping out of a plane in 72 hours yeah, in a week. Sure. Right? Like, it's, it's just kind of like, all right, we're here now. Okay, we're going yeah. up on the plane. This all happened, like, almost too quickly. I can get cerebral about stuff, and I would have really just – talk my way out of doing that like what okay the angle of failure the, the whatever whatever i'd have calculated some risk yep. that made me say no a perfectly good plane right, right. <laughs> yeah. how was how was the experience like after you jump out of the plane like what is it like when you're actually when you're flying Mar yeah you know, man so what I, I was trying to explain this to my fiance and our kids we we, we have three boys we were talking about it and I showed the kids the video and I was, I think it was her. I was telling that the moment that you jump out of the plane, you just feel like this big force of wind on your face. So the wind goes in your mouth and you kind of can't really, <laughs> you know, you can't yeah. like keep your jaws and your, your mouth and all that, your cheeks closed because the wind is just forcing its way into your face. So mm -hmm. you're kind of going down like that. But once they pull the chute, then it just, all of a sudden shifts to this very calm experience and then yeah. you can appreciate the scenery and it's like, wow, it's beautiful up here. And then <laughs> as you start getting closer to the ground, you're like, hold on, man, we're moving kind of fast. Like, yeah, are we going to slow down? And he's like, nah, you know, keep your feet up and keep you, your feet you up. hit the ground. So you kind of slide down onto the ground, man. Yeah. 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 So it's like a four step process going up the jump, the float down and then the landing. That's awesome. Would you do it again? Or you know you what, man? Back? If the kid wanted to do it, I might, but I'd probably be too old by that time. I, I don't, I don't, I can't yeah, think of a good reason. Too hard. That's, to, yeah, you, you lose that hip. Playing again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just one of those, it's like getting a doctor. It's just something you don't have to do. You know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> Perfectly good playing again. <laughs> right. That's awesome. I have yeah. never, I've never jumped uh, out of a plane, been on many, um, yeah. but uh, the, uh, what I have done in the diving world is I, uh, another fun fact about me is that I have my scuba diving license oh wow. um, and so i've okay. been scuba diving a bunch and i i absolutely love that moment where you go underwater mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you just see an entire world yeah. that you intellectually knew was there but, don't but really to then actually get in there and to yeah. see it uh even even it was funny even if it's in like the most boring places right like not just like coral reefs everywhere or whatever mm -hmm. Um, I went, I went diving in some river in Florida and it's not like the fish are stunning and the, what the grass is the same color green as other grass, but it's just all of a sudden you're just in a new world yeah. and it, it's just incredible. Yeah. You know, the thing that scares me about that, it's always something, it's something that I've, I have this weird relationship with water cause I almost drowned when I was a kid. I, I okay. guess that's an interesting fact. I never, yeah, that's what I go. never really shared. I almost <laughs> drowned and then I saved my best friend who almost drowned. That's weird but anyway um so i had this really love hate relationship with water but the yeah. whole scuba diving thing i always think about bins that that mm -hmm. whole you know coming up yeah fast. yeah it's just like that scares that scares me just thinking about that <laughs> yeah absolutely uh and it does it definitely scares me as well i have never uh i'm new to i'm fairly new to diving as in the amount of times that i have divin 
dove. Anyway, <laughs> words are hard, but uh, but uh, in the amount of times that I've done it, uh, I have never gone to a super deep depth. Like I think the lowest I've gone is like maybe forty feet. Um, and which is so, pretty deep, man. Which is pretty deep. It is pretty deep. Yeah. But at some point, like I mean, I think after thirty is when you really need to make sure that you're not shooting up. Oh, um, okay. And uh, okay. that's when, uh, yeah, that's that's when it can get and they can get a little bit of an issue for sure. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, that's also why it's important. Just like, I mean, almost almost identically to the idea of going with um, a buddy uh, or you're being strapped to somebody, uh, mm-hmm. there's almost always an instructor with you or okay. someone who knows the area uh, that is kind of there who's a dive master. And and I don't, I don't think I would ever do a dive without a dive master being there. Being um, there somebody's gotcha. kinda, yeah. <clears throat> so somebody's yeah. out there doing the calculations of like, all right, 60 feet, that means we need to ascend at this. At and rate. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. need that kind of math in my life. So Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where you can't panic and float back up. Like you can't rush your way back up. You got to still, you know, it's that. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's- yeah, you leave the right amount of oxygen, so you can just kind of flow. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And if you, if there's one point too. At some point, when you go so deep, you actually have to stop at like the 30 foot mark and like stay there for a minute and let your body decompress also. Oh, wow. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff and uh, yeah, it definitely can get scary. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't, I don't know. It's yeah, that's, it's just pretty magical. Hey, that's a nice claim to fame though, man. You don't meet too yeah, many man. licensed scuba divers <laughs> out there. <laughs> uh, I love it, man. Um, and thanks for sharing that story about oh, uh, almost drowning too, man. That's scary, yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. So how old was that? How old were you? I was playing, I played base, little league baseball in Palm Bluff from age eight to age 12. And at the end of the year, end of the season, they'd always do a team party with the the whole league and they get all the kids and you go out to some lake. And so I was not a good swimmer, but I could doggy paddle and get around in the water. So it was never an issue. And so basically we would all float out to this little uh wooden dock kind of thing out in the middle of the river and then you jump out and then you doggy paddle your way back to the little ladder and climb up and do it again but the rule was when you jump you wait for the person that jumped to get out of the way and then you jump well kids being kids i jumped and before i could get out of the way some kid jumped and he kicked me and i panicked and i went under and it was it that was it. That and was it's it. just like you die. You could drop. You could drown and die just like that. And from what I was told, you don't really know that the person is drowning. You know, drowning doesn't look like the movies. It's not dramatic. Right. Yeah. And so the uh, coach's daughter was a lifeguard. She had to drag me out. And it was the most embarrassing thing. So I'm oh, like this washed up yuppie <laughs> on the banks of the and they're basically like, you sit here for the rest of the, you can't go in the water. You're a liability. And I'm, I'm one of two black kids, man, in the whole entire league. Think makes it even that. worse. So it's just like, here's this black kid. He can't swim. He almost drowned. Had to fish it, fish his ass out. Yeah. And my mom put me in swimming lessons, I think, within the next couple of weeks. And her and my godmother would take me because my mom couldn't swim, but my godmother could. So my mom couldn't take me. My godmother took me. And so my siblings and I, we all got swimming lessons. And so with my kid, I had him in the water when, you know, six months. I put some little swimmers on and I get him in the water because I wanted him to be okay with yeah. The idea of, of swimming in a way, my best friend almost drowned was similar. We were at a pool in Palm Bluff. Some kid jumped in and kicked him and he went under. And luckily I was able to kind of grab him and pull him out, man. It's just, it's, it's paying it forward, Isaac. You're paying, paying it, it forward. forward. <laughs> he reminded me of it like two weeks ago. We were on the phone. He's like, man, you fished me out. You know, we were in somebody's backyard. Parents were just looking. Nobody yeah. came to try to save us, man. Again, just some black kids probably had no business over there but you know how it goes (laughs) (laughs) oh shoot man that's so funny that's so funny it's life Uh, that's all my life i had to fight so um so i want to talk to you a little bit about what you teach you're a business professor Mm -hmm. i know you mentioned earlier that you had a leadership class earlier um and uh and so uh that that's awesome um and i don't necessarily know about the subjects you teach here's my question for you is that business is a lot about ethics right and there's so many ethics in business and but at the same time we live in a capitalistic society going all the way back to what you were talking about earlier right people love their freedoms Mm -hmm. um and and whatnot and so uh, 
I'm curious to hear what some of your like philosophies are when it comes to business around the teaching of it, getting involved, who should get involved in it, um, and like how should they carry themselves? You know, like some things like that. I mean, it's general philosophies around that you try to that you hope those students walk out um, walk out with. So you know, like, hey, I'm I'm excited to be to witness that student's business one day or the way yeah. that that person leads one day, right? Like, how are you creating those kind of role models in the business world that coming out of your classroom? I think my students would probably describe my teaching as grounded in compassion. That's okay. what my research is on and entre- I do entre- uh, research on compassion and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. I'm a very compassionate person and I teach from that lens. So I try to impress upon my students the, the need to uh, deal with people in a way where you're showing grace and compassion, even in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it relates to ethics and, you know, doing the right thing in my, I, I teach business strategy, entrepreneurship and leadership. And in all three of those classes, I do lecture on the need to have sound ethical principles, uh, not only because it's a requirement in our curriculum, but it's just the right thing to do. You know, right. we have so many yeah. examples in the world of just, People being themselves, but then taking their full self to business. It's not the business that's corrupt. It's the individuals. It's people. You know, people make up these organizations and they create the culture. And so when things are going wrong, it goes back to a person or a group of people. You know, no company is bad. (laughs) It's the people in it. So I just try to help my students understand the the value in, in doing business the right way. And, and doing business in a way where you're compassionate. You know, we talk a lot about corporations and the decisions that they make and the impact that they have on the workers and what that looks like. We talk about it from the corporate perspective. We also talk about it from, you know, the individual perspective. You know, mm-hmm. if a company downsizes and what does that look like from a bottom line perspective, but also what does that look like from a human capital perspective? Because sure. uh, I've worked in those settings. I've worked in companies where, you know, the guy you're working with gets a pink slip. You know, when I was at IBM within my first three months as a full time engineer, they did a, a, a division wide layoff. Mm-hmm. And it was the, the worst thing I had ever experienced at that age, because they basically said, you have to find a new job in 30 days. But there's also a hiring freeze. So yeah. we're not firing you. You just have to find a new job in 30 days. But there's a hiring freeze. But you have to find a new job in 30 days. It's like, what the hell are y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I rolled out, man. And yeah. um, I was like, wow. And we're seeing that a lot right now, right around COVID. Yeah. Right? And just the way, I mean, the companies, obviously, this, was, this wasn't in their business plan for 2020. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, and so. Uh, but plan to lose billions. Yeah, right. And, pandemic. Yeah. And so how do you handle it? Right. You see a lot of people, obviously, uh, CEOs and, and, and the top presidents taking like 50 percent of their mm-hmm. salary and then the next level downs taking 75. The next level, you know yeah. what I'm saying, kind of goes all the way yeah. down where everybody's taking a little bit of a cut. Um, and so you see some of that. You see some of those ethics at work. But then, you know, you also hear about some companies that just like it's at one point in time, the the guillotine comes down, right? Yeah. And and all of a sudden, they just chop a whole section of their workforce yeah, um, and kind of blindside a lot of individuals. It's been fascinating to watch uh, the dance in business right now. Yeah. IBM cut 10K uh, in the last month. A buddy of mine who had been there for, you know, some, some years, you know, he got caught up in it. And he basically said, man, they are wiping, they're doing a huge headcount reduction. But of course, you know, they have the stock market and investors that they are beholden to. So they have to show that they're willing to make these efforts to save money and, you know, right the ship, as they say. Uh, There's always a human cost to to doing business. And I, I talk to my students a lot about what that human cost looks like, because business is the language of the world. You know, it's all about commerce and trade, Mm -hmm. uh, but people drive it. So people are often negatively impacted by it too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a powerful way to put it, that there's a, there's a human cost uh, to business. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll give you an example, man. My son, he's nine. He asked me, uh, I think sometime last week, he said, when there were cavemen, this is what he asked me. He said, when there were cavemen, did they have businesses? And I'm like, damn, he's been hanging around me too much. <laughs> he's been he's listening, probably listening to this conversation over there. In the and I told him, I said, well, 
what people did back then was they engaged with trade. So yeah. you may have had an onion and I may have had an apple. So we would just trade. We use goods and that was our exchange. Now we use products and services and that's yeah. our exchange. That's just what we've evolved to. You know, we're just advanced cavemen, right? Cave women or cave people. Right. Yeah. Cave people. <laughs> and so, um, you know, back to your question, when you think about how businesses run today, it's still the same idea. There is some type of service or product being offered and there is a certain individual or group of people who want that and they were willing to trade currency for that product or service. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing now, I'll pick on Amazon because it's the easy target, I guess. I just got a package sure. today from Jeff. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, Jeff sends out stuff. He's, he's <laughs> sorry, man. Jeff sends stuff all over the world all the time, man, all, mm-hmm. all the times of the day. But anyway, you've got organizations like, like Amazon who are doing a great job of providing products and services at a great pace and great speed, very effective, but it needs people to be able to deliver those goods and services, right? And so how far do you push the people that are helping you get those goods and services out, right? If you tell me your prime membership is going to get you packages in one day instead of two, okay, who's who's pushing the packages? Who's loading the trucks? And what did that do for them. So right. man, everything that moves in business is being moved by people in that organization. So mm-hmm. at some level, they're always impacted by decisions. If yeah. we're going to try to double our, our our revenues this year, who's doing it? The people at the worker level, they're the ones doubling the revenue. You know, the organization made the decision, but the workers have to drive it. So mm-hmm. there's the human cost is always there, man. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a beautiful example. And, and uh, Jeff, Jeff sent th- something here too. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Hey, man, my fiance, I'm, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't been to her place today. I bet she got a package from Jeff. She gets stuff sure, from Jeff know? every day, man. We out here. We out here. Um, <clears throat> Martha got a, Martha got a package from Jeff. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, you know, one thing that, you and I share in common is this, this, this love of uh, compassion, right? Especially yeah. in business. Um, yeah. And I talk about specifically in, in, in a lot of the leadership work that I do as a fellow leadership nerd, I mm-hmm. talk about authentic leadership, the role that authenticity, vulnerability play in leadership. Right. And, uh, and I just, I had a situation that I want to tell you about. I'm curious to hear how you would have answered it. Okay. Um, but uh, so I was speaking at a school, a small private school up in Massachusetts a university. And, uh, and so I give my whole talk about authenticity and vulnerability and, uh, and basically how we need to have better conversations and relatability is super powerful and leadership and supervision and the way that we talk to each other because when you see yourselves in somebody else we automatically believe a little bit more that we can and so there's a lot of power in relatability and, and relate we can't get to relatability if we don't have vulnerability yada 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 you see you know the dance they all play together and so uh, so I give this whole speech about authentic leadership and uh, this gentleman comes up to me uh, six, three golf shirt on. Um, and, uh, just a great hair looks great. Right. Like, and, uh, like could have been pulled from the, yeah, yeah. Could have, yeah. Could have been pulled from like the Kennedys, um, and had the accent to boot. And so, um, very nice man, but the whole presentation, he didn't laugh at one of my jokes. Um, and (laughs) I don't know if you notice, I have my moments. I'm pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. still, like, he, he wasn't giving me anything. I was like, oh, I'm going to get this guy at some point in time. Um, didn't get him the whole time. That's fine. You win, sir. Uh, but he comes up to me afterwards, and which is always surprising. Usually the most angry people in the room are the quickest to leave. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that he came up to me afterwards, I also appreciated because that means he was actually paying attention, right? He was thinking yeah, about the message. Sure. He was absorbing it for him. And so I was like, oh, shoot. Maybe you're not a douchebag. Great. Let's have a conversation. Um, And uh, and so he said uh, and so he says to me, he says, he's like, James, you know, I, I like your speech. I like your speech, James. He said, but I don't think it applies to me uh, because I'm going into business and business. We kind of, you kind of have all these ways that things are supposed to be done because they've been done the same way for so long and the way that people carry each other, you know, we're not going to all of a sudden be authentic and be touchy feely and be like, you know, Oh, let me tell you about this. And the other thing that's going on in my life, he's like, I'll get, I'll get crushed if I do that in the corporate world. He's like, so I appreciate your speech, but I just, I just don't think, it could be helpful to me. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts about that, James? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you think about that, man? 
when I, if, if I would have heard that, you know, I would have thought to myself, like, man, poor guy, because he's he must have been in some really tough uh, competitive environments. Mm-hmm. If you were working in a space where you feel as if there is no room for that, just think about what it would feel like to work in that particular setting. But look, I've been in some in some really, uh, really tough work environments, man. Being a, a black engineer working in I.T., working in, de- in, in military and defense. Sure. It's it, it can get it can get tense, man. But I always kept it the same. I'm very level headed. I'm kind of cool, calm, collective, really chill guy. But I'm also, you know, compassionate and, and, and show concern. And even in spaces where I'm not met with that, I still lead with that. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is you end up breaking through because it's such a stark contrast with what everything else is in that environment. If that makes sense. I've had some people that were nasty to me in my career. I've also had people that were really good to me and the people that were very nasty. I kept it the same. I was still very, thank you, man. I really appreciate the fact that you're talking shit right now and you think I suck, but man, I wouldn't have made it here without you. Matter of fact, I'm going to send you a thank you card. God bless you. You know, I'm not going to, going to, I'm not going to waver in those settings. And I think that you have to really double down. Mm-hmm. when you are in environments like that and it's not because you're trying to change the space it's yeah. just that everywhere you occupy space you know it's your right to be able to lead with how you are you shouldn't have to check that at the door yeah. so you know that's what i would have said to him i don't know if it would have worked no, but that's what i would say <laughs> no, i like that man i like that for sure um and, and i yeah i agree uh it, it spoke volumes to me that this gentleman was already ready to dive into a corporate culture that he was like, I am, and this is kind of what I talked to him about. I said, I was like, do you think what I talked about today was important? Yeah. And he said, yes. He's like, I do. He's like, it sounds nice. He's like, I'm just going to get eaten alive if I try it. And yeah. I said, so you are just going to go in and be complicit with the system that you've been handed. Um, and I was, you know, and that's kind of what we talked about from that. Like, it's how we had the conversation. That's actually a good point. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. It's, you got to pick your battles, right? You can't go, especially as a young buck, yeah. uh, you can't be in there. I mean, I made that mistake for sure. I made, I made a few, two suggestions in my first job out of grad school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> asked a few too many pointed questions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. So anyway, I got, I got a blackmail myself with that one. Um, but, uh, <laughs> But still, I mean, you got to play the game for sure. Yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting thing. I guess last week and I talked about this. Um, is, it, is it better to be in the system and trying to change it or is it better to try to change the system from outside? And so yeah. you know, there's some things that I talked to him about. And I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting idea. Uh, there's a book by uh, a guy named, uh, oh man, I'm going to mess up his name. It's either Dershowitz or Dereshevitz. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll come back to it. But the book's title is Excellent Sheep. Um, uh, It's an interesting book, and he wrote it about Ivy League schools and how Ivy League schools are not asking their students to think. They're only teaching their students how to be excellent sheep, how to succeed (laughs) in this current world um, and not not challenge it, not anything, just like, no, you come through this system, you get your grades, you do what you got to do, and then we put you out into the world and you just kind of keep the cycle going. Yeah, um, yeah, fascinating concept to me for well, sure. That, that, that's it. happening. It's it's happening a lot. I think that's where business schools are being challenged, especially on this ethics piece, because people are going back to how these these folks are being trained and saying, "Look, you guys have you've got to do things very different." You know, I do think that there is something to be said about being in the system and not really being able to change it versus you know not being in the system. I do think it is a choice. You always have a choice of whether you want to be in a system or not. But when you're in a system, sometimes you don't have any power to do anything different. So the only thing that you can do is bring yourself to the table and lead with that. It may or may not always be accepted because I I can't say I was always fully accepted everywhere that I went. But I like to tell my students that, hey, you do have a choice in places that you go and spend your time. If these places don't work for you. That's fine. And yes, you may miss out on certain opportunities, but there are other places that you can go that mm-hmm. that may work for you, too. And yeah. so that's something I think a lot of young people don't realize is that there's power in choice and power in using your voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Isaac, I completely agree, brother. I like the way you think. Uh, <laughs> I do that already, though. Uh, it has been so special getting to hang out with you. Thanks for uh, giving us a little bit of a key to your brain um, and just uh, and just letting us in, man, to some of your philosophies. And also, uh, I appreciate you telling us more about uh, educating me. I know definitely about uh, tribes in Ghana and in Africa, for that for that matter. And I mean, all the the whole way, this conversation has been. Super cool, man. I really appreciate you a lot. Hey, man, this has been fun. I've enjoyed it. You know, it, an hour has gone by, and I'm like, oh, wow, it's been an hour. It felt like 20 minutes. <laughs> felt like we're old buddies, man. So, look, when the world opens up, we got to commit to getting together at a diner somewhere between so these wings you were talking Minneapolis about. and Nashville. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. To, I'm coming to Nashville and getting these wings. Hey, um, hey, dude. Some good wings, man. I'm yeah. telling you, it's some good, some good wings down here. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And then maybe, I, maybe I need to make my way up there because Target's is one of my one of my guilty pleasures too. I hang out there when I'm looking for some stuff to do. And yeah, or this is right where you are. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we got and we have a stupid amount of Targets here. Uh, oh, I can imagine. I, I went to the original Target, uh, and uh, apparently, apparently, it was the original Target. I didn't know that. And the only thing that it's it's a, just like any other Target, they just have a plaque in the front. So that's about uh, it. I was Hoping it would look kind of different or something like that. Like, you know, they bring back the vintage look, but not like I talk a lot about them in in all of my classes, man, because they just have a great business model. I mean, this it's yeah, they got a good thing going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, the way they uh, cultivate young leaders, too, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's I recommend true. a lot of students that are looking to get into uh, business from the jump. It's just like Target's a good place to start because they're doing the right thing with their training. Okay, um, okay. I'll keep um, that in but, mind. Yeah. So, well, listen, Isaac, I appreciate it, man. Would you be willing to hang out for a little bit of a Q&A? Here, yeah, man, of course. All day. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. We're going to do that in just a second. My friends who are listening on the podcast, it's been so special getting to hang out with y'all. Thanks for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, give us some stars on that iTunes uh, what re- review system they got over there. Um, and make sure that you check out Isaac. All the information about him will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening, y'all. Have a dope day. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. (laughs) If you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. (laughs) Also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.